$15 billion industry. That's for adults, run by adults, for adults at the expense of kids. The professionalization of youth sports is really problematic in this country. And, uh, boy, then you've got the professionalization of, of college sports and certainly professional sports, and it's all squeezing on the life of, uh, of young people. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak to Joe Ehrman, a former National Football League defensive lineman, originally drafted as the 10th pick in the first round of the 1973 NFL Draft out of Syracuse, but that's not what we're going to talk to him about. Joe Ehrman has become the leading voice in this country who is rethinking and reteaching how to coach this new generation of people. He's the author of Inside Out Coaching, How Sports Can Transform Lives. You can check him out at coachforamerica.com. We are so honored to have him on the show, Joe Ehrman. So, Joe, I think of your work as the work of someone who's trying to claim what is best about sports. Is that accurate? Is that the best way to describe what you do? Uh yeah, it's become my life work for sure. Uh, I think we need to reclaim the transformative power of sports, both uh, on a societal level and an individual level. Uh, my current work really is uh, reclaiming the educational value of sports. Why do we even have sports connected uh, to our educational system if they're not going to be education-based? So how do we make sports education-based? How do we forge that connection? Well, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm a product of the 1960s, so historically sports have always been a metaphor for social change. You talk about civil rights, human rights, uh, women's rights, uh, sports have always brought many of those issues into mainstream and uh, uh, political consciousness. Uh, somewhere in the last 10, 15 years ago, we moved into this one-at-all-cost mentality, and uh, and we're paying a great expense for that. So if you look at interscholastic sports today, I mean, basically every study shows that the longer athletes play, the higher levels they attain, the more morally and ethically callous they become. There's something leukemic uh, beginning mm. in youth sports all the way to the upper levels that's not uh, healthy for this country, our communities, or citizens. So I've been working now uh, with educational leaders across the country to uh, reclaim the proper role of sports. Historically, the goal of sports is to win. You play to win, you plan to win, you prepare to win because of winning and losing are all these invaluable lessons about life and about self. But that's not the purpose. The purpose of high school sports is to connect young people to their learning institution, caring adults with autonomy coaches, and for the human growth development. So we need to reclaim that space in this country. Have these germs in sports, uh, have they always existed, or do you think this is something new that's come like with the modern age? Well, I think it's, uh, it's kind of morphed. I think uh, historically it's really been uh, built around unhealthy masculinity. And I would say in the last 15, 20 years, um, it's just, you know, you look at the youth sports industry today, that's, that's a $15 billion industry. That's for adults, run by adults, for adults at the expense of kids. So I think in the last, the professionalization of youth sports is really problematic in this country. And uh, boy, then you've got the professionalization of, of college sports and so 
only professional sports, and it's all squeezing on the life of, uh, of young people. My son wants to play youth sports. What should I be looking for in the person who is coaching my kid? Is the key question whether or not, as you've put it in your writing, transformational or transactional? And can you explain what that means? Well, you're exactly right. There's two kinds of coaches. Transactional coaches that basically use young people for their own identity, validation, empowerment, uh, often at the expense. Uh, coaching has an extrinsic value. It's never about uh, what's going on in the lives of players. And there's transformational coaches that understand the position they have in the lives of young people and are going to use that to change the arc of every young person's life. So I think when you go to a youth sports program and they can't tell you what the purpose is, we all know what the goal is. Uh, the goal is to win, but what is the purpose? So every transformational coach ought to have a clear transformational purpose statement. What is the purpose of their coaching? What's the purpose of that youth program? So as you know, I was a longtime high school coach, and I had to figure out my purpose. So I coach to help boys become men of empathy and integrity who lead, be responsible, and change the world for good. So when you have a youth program, they can't tell you what the purpose is. Uh, the coaches aren't developed, have no understanding of the developmental age in which they're coaching. That's really problematic. Now you said that a coach should have a purpose. Should this purpose be articulated to players and parents, or is this just more like a catechism that they should say to themselves and hold to their hearts? No, I think it has to be articulated within that athletic department or that youth league. What is the purpose of that league? Uh, is it just about winning? Uh, if your purpose isn't aligned with your goal, uh, then your goal is going to become your purpose, and it's often going to be at, uh, at any cost, and most of that cost is uh, the development of young people. So, you know, I'm doing, I run a national program now on, uh, with high school coaches. Boy, we want every athletic department to state what their purpose is. What is the purpose of that within the educational uh, school system, within that community? Uh, then parents need to know. Uh, parents parents are going to make up a story about what your purpose is as a coach if you don't tell them. I wanted to be held accountable based on what my purpose was. My goal was to win, but the scoreboard always doesn't dictate the difference I'm making in the lives of young people. So I think if we're ever going to alleviate many of the, uh, you know, we got a crisis in America. You know, uh, I've been working with athletic directors for a long time now. And, uh, out in California, they've got a 40% turnover rate. Minnesota, 25% turnover rate of athletic directors. It's become untenable, uh, which is the pressures to win, uh, both above uh, with administration and uh, with parents. So the purpose has got to be stated, and that's what you want to be held accountable. How am I helping your boy become a man? How am I developing his moral character? If I'm not doing that, then you probably don't want me coaching your boy. You talk about working with high school coaches, but you've also worked with the pros. How does that teaching change, if at all, when you move from the high school level to the multi-billion dollar business that is the National Football League? Well, on a player level, they really don't. Um, not only should every coach have a transformational purpose, every player ought to have a teammate purpose. What is a clear, succinct statement about the difference you're trying to make in the lives of your teammates? What is your responsibility to them? So I worked, as you know, in the NFL for a long time, still do, going from team to team on player conduct issues. Would have every player develop their transformational purpose statement. So when you walk in that facility, you know what your responsibility is to your teammates. So uh, on that level, it doesn't uh, transcend at all. And I think that when you look at the professional levels, 
those coaches that can build relationships have a concern about their players, well, they're nine out of ten times they're going to they're win more. They're going to get more out of their players as well. You've written a great deal and you've spoken out a great deal about how sports can develop toxic masculinity. And that, of course, translates to sexism and homophobia. Have you seen with your own eyes that sports can be something that unteaches toxic masculinity? Yeah, very much so. And that's a, kind of a big part of what I do. So you have to teach what healthy masculinity looks like. In order to teach that, you have to name what's toxic within that culture. So every boy is put inside this man box. And you learn at a very early age. It's called having. By the time boys are three to five years old, they've already been split in two. Masculine qualities, feminine qualities. And those masculine mm-hmm. qualities are elevated over the feminine qualities. It's really interesting. When you look at, you know, there's two types of character. There's performance character and there's moral character. Performance character has to do with relationship to self. So things like grit, self-determination, overcoming obstacles, those had to do with performance. Moral character are things like kindness and trust, respect, uh, empathy, moral courage. Uh, those basically are seen as feminine qualities. And in the sports world, we lift up the performance of what we identify as masculine. Uh, or if we're ever going to grow uh, healthy men, fight toxic masculinity, we've got to put those things on equal uh, um, on, on parallel um, uh, developmental scale. So you've got to teach that, and that's the beauty of team sports. You want to mm. teach boys how to develop relationships. It takes a healthy man to be a healthy teammate. It takes a healthy man to be a transformational coach. Um, so, yeah, very much you have to be very intentional in teaching this, and you know, we, we've got, well, in this country today, I mean, we just have a real crisis from our president on down when it comes to toxic masculinity. So what does it say about this country where a sexual predator is elected president of the United States and that's held up? I mean, does that help or hurt your work when you talk to young kids that this example is out there? Yeah, you've got you've to create models, and that's what coaches ought to be. Uh, you know, uh, they're really mentors. Uh, the difference in the young people's lives is, has to do with mentorship. But boys need to see what a healthy man looks like, and then you need to coach toward that uh, healthy masculinity. But you have to identify what the issues are that makes it toxic. And uh, sports is too often, uh, particularly in our youth and high school levels, it's built around performance. It has to be developed around moral character. So mm-hmm. to me, the antidote to most of our social problems in America today if we ever developed empathy in men, young boys, the ability to understand what other people are feeling, what causes those feelings, and then we develop the moral courage, their ability to speak and stand on values in face of their fears, we start addressing a lot of these issues. So, you know, in football you say you can't play if you can't block and tackle. I don't think you can be a healthy man if you don't have a, a healthy sense of empathy a connection to other human beings and then understand it's not enough to just understand what people are feeling, but how do you create change? How do you advocate? How do you elevate other human beings? So when you look at this young generation of young boys who you're working with and coaching, are you hopeful or despondent? No, I'm very hopeful. I I think uh, millennials today understand they're going to grow up. They're going to have, their wives are going to be working. They're going to have shared responsibility. I I think uh, in many respects, it's a much kinder, gentler, not that we don't have a lot of work to do and not that there's not a lot of toxic masculinity, uh, but I think we're, we are heading in the right direction. On a bit of a different note, Joe, I, I know you believe so strongly in the importance of the team 
and the team working together to act as one to build a community. What do you think when a player removes themselves from the team to take part in something like an anthem protest? Well, I think uh, I, I think you have to take your individual actions and stands within the community, within the team. Uh, I think you have a responsibility to explain what you're doing and why you're doing it. Uh, and I know my own career, uh played for 13 years, uh, but in college, 1970, we were a preseason top 10 pick. All the black players walked off the team for an entire year. It became an incredible racial divide, and our coach at that time uh, split that divide. Uh, when I look back at my sports career, I think the greatest thing I learned was from people that were different from me. Uh, I got a depth and a breadth of understanding uh, the life of a black man from my black teammates. There was no way I could understand that. There's no way I understand the pain of that. So uh, I think uh, you know, I, I think the opportunity in the NFL today and uh, in sports today is, uh, and I'm kind of disappointed the lack of support from many of the white players. I, I just think it's uh, you don't make an individual stand, but I think you have to take the opportunity to educate why you're doing what you're doing. Mm. And, then, and then deal with that. But this is a tremendous opportunity for white players to learn. So, you know, you, things like Black Lives Matter and stuff, uh, white men have to be educated on that. Mm-hmm. They can't have historical amnesia. You've got to understand past, present uh, realities about that. So well, I always wanted to support my teammates, and uh, but I wanted to be educated by them. Joe, if you could say anything to the Colin Kaepernick's or Michael Bennett's or Brianna Stewart's of the world, what would it be? Well, I would bring the team together. I, I would call team meetings, and I would explain that uh, to my teammates. Uh, here's what happened. Here's what I'm feeling. Uh, here's the justification for that, and here's what I'm going to do. And then I would ask for support. And if not support, then just don't pass judgment on that. But uh, we are a team. Uh, we need each other. We affect each other. We belong to each other in many respects. So uh, I would want your support when I uh, when a Michael Bennett uh, experiences what he does, because most uh, white people just cannot uh, connect to that. But if that's my teammate, I have a relationship to him. Boy, I want to hear what he has to say, and, and I'm going to uh, integrate that into my own belief system. Last question for you, Joe, and thank you so much for your time. This year, I'm going to coach my son's nine-year-old rec basketball team. What would you say to a room of uh, eight basketball-obsessed nine-year-olds? Just, I'll take some notes here. Well, again, I'd go back and I'd make sure they understand what your purpose is. Uh, Boy, your purpose, and I think every transformational coach in some sense has a purpose to help boys become men. And masculinity, to me, is built around two things. It's built around relational connectivity. I want to play team sports because I want to be connected to my teammates. Uh, the second part is commitment to a cause. Uh, you know, a team is a set of relationships for a cause. you got to build relationships. Uh, you're not, you don't compete against each other. There's this team quest for excellence. And then it's about commitment to that cause. So I, I just think you have to teach boys that athletic performance does not equate to masculinity. Mm-hmm. Where that assist is just as important as the uh, as the pass. Uh, I'm sure on the sidelines. So I would, you know, if I was you, it's a tremendous opportunity to elevate what are the moral character standards that you want to coach. And every time a player does that, uh, you celebrate that and elevate that and affirm that. Uh, those are moments of greatness. So you're going to 
teach your boys how to be empathic. Boy, you're on that bench coaching. It's not just about X's and O's. How does it feel to miss that shot? What about when an opponent gets hurt? You want to continue to develop that and affirm that. Joe Ehrman, thank you so much for your time. Uh, what website can people go to to show people what you do? Yeah, Inside Out Initiative, insideoutinitiative.org. Uh, we're in about 10 states right now. work through state uh, high school associations and uh, with principals and superintendents to reclaim, reclaim that educational value, the transformative power of sports. Thank you. David, pleasure to be with you. Thank you. And I'll say this. Your son and those boys are lucky to have you be their coach. Just keep in mind, Joe, I, I might get in touch with you this year. I might have to bend your ear. Feel free. To be a better coach, you got to be a better you. Thank you, Joe. You're making me happy. All right. Good to talk to you, David. Thanks for your work. And you as well. We'll be back right after this with some choice words about the latest in the Michael Bennett Las Vegas police situation. But first, a quick word from The Nation magazine. Look, for 150 years, The Nation has been fearless in the face of all sorts of issues that confront this country. That's why there is no publication more suited for explaining the Trump agenda. This week, I think it's going to be a remarkable issue. We've got Danny McLean on the Black Lives Matter movement. It's a follow-up of where the movement is today. We've got Joan Scott on multiculturalism, feminism, and its discontents. And we've got incredible other stuff as well. Oh, my God. I can't even go through it all. It's so good. But people need to check it out. There's also a huge feature about the resegregation of schools in this country that every parent should have to read. People should subscribe to The Nation. You don't need it physically in your hand. You can read it online. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please don't forget, if you go to The Nation website and subscribe, you are also supporting the very existence of this podcast. And now, back to the program. Now I've got some choice words about the latest news with Michael Bennett and the Las Vegas Police Department and their absolutely vicious slander against him. Look, Seattle Seahawk Michael Bennett's public statement, which featured a vivid emotional description of being handcuffed and threatened by Las Vegas police on the morning of August 27th during a chaotic scene on the Strip after the Mayweather-McGregor fight, was disturbing enough. As video and photographic evidence shows, he was put on the ground by Vegas police and handcuffed with a knee put into his back while the primary officer took out a weapon and placed it near the back of his head. While an official spokesperson for the LVMPD, as they're known, merely asked people to suspend commentary until it completed its investigation, the police union has chosen to escalate this situation in a manner that should enrage anyone who thinks the police should serve everyone equally under the law. In a public letter addressed to NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell, the Vegas Police Union gives the game away early. In the opening paragraph, it calls on Goodell to, quote, conduct an investigation and take appropriate action into Michael Bennett's obvious false allegations against our officers, end quote. But calling upon Bennett's employer to investigate him in response to speaking about what happened is gobsmackingly not even the most repugnant part. The union then references Bennett's anthem protests, and with the thud of a bully's sucker punch, they write, While the NFL may condone Bennett's disrespect for our American flag and everything it symbolizes, we hope the league will not ignore Bennett's false accusations against our police officers. End quote. 
Now, invoking Bennett's politics as a post facto justification for what took place is incredibly dangerous and irresponsible. It's a cheap effort to put out the idea to the world that no matter what the officers in question may have done, Michael Bennett deserved what happened to him because of his political beliefs. Now, after that, the letter is just manure thrown against the wall with the hope that something sticks. It's terribly shoddy work for a document aiming to refute Bennett's false accusations against our police officers, quote unquote. But nothing factual that Bennett described in his own letter or in his subsequent press conference is either challenged or refuted. Bennett claimed that he feared for his life after hearing what he thought were gunshots. He fled with masses of other people. He then said, and again, this is backed up by photographs and video that we have seen, that a police officer put a gun by his head as he lay handcuffed and prone on the ground, threatening to, quote, blow his fucking head off, end quote. We would know more, but the officer had his body camera turned off at the time of the incident. And nothing in the letter from the Las Vegas Police Union refutes anything in the scenario that I just described. The other deeply distressing part of the letter is its frothing rage at Bennett's statement that racism was a part of why he was singled out as chaos reigned on the strip. Bennett explains his fear while lying prone on the ground, writing, I am going to die for no other reason than I am black and my skin color was somehow a threat, end quote. These were Bennett's fears. They are not subject to debate. Yet the Vegas Police Union said that racism could not have been a part of it since some of the officers on the scene were people of color, as if that has anything to do with power, powerlessness, or the question of racial profiling. Then there's the part where police describe Bennett as someone who, quote, leapt over a four-foot barrier wall. Look, I've seen Bennett in the gym, and he's a hell of an athlete. But he's also six foot four and weighs about 280 pounds. He does not jump over 48-inch barrier walls. You know, this kind of language mirrors the words that police have used to describe Michael Brown and Tamir Rice, making them sound like they're superhuman in size and strength, adjectives that are used to justify killing them. Now, in what can only be deemed as one holy hell of a coincidence, the Las Vegas PD announced last week, 12 days after the incident, that they are investigating quote-unquote reports that Bennett was involved in a quote-unquote altercation earlier that evening. It's a shameful, transparent, and vindictive act by a police department bruised over being called out. And for the record, it's been over a week since they said he was being investigated. Nothing else has come out about it since then. It's just something they put out there after he came out with his statement as a way to further muddy the waters and create that kind of right-wing echo chamber where every time Michael Bennett is mentioned on television, not only is the fact that he was thrown on the ground mentioned, but then they also mention Las Vegas police are investigating any role that Michael Bennett may have had in the incident. It's complete and utter crap. Look, Michael Bennett has taken a great risk in coming forward for the simple reason that he knows he has the money and resources to stand up in a way that so many people hurt by police violence do not. Now the Vegas Police Union has foolishly decided to victimize someone who refuses to be a victim. The Vegas Police Union has also made a terrible tactical mistake in attacking Michael Bennett's character. They're going after somebody that's given his time, his money, and his heart to causes ranging from childhood nutrition to orphans in Haiti to impoverished indigenous communities to setting up science programs for young girls in underserved neighborhoods and, yes, to standing up to police violence. They should not take on Michael Bennett's character for the simple reason that, 
as hundreds of people who have been personally helped by this man can attest, it's not a fair fight. And those choice words flow directly into this week's Just Stand Up Award. Just Stand Up! There is obviously a great deal of pressure on Michael Bennett right now. And there's also a great deal of pressure on people to not speak out upon his behalf. And yet, this past week in The Nation magazine, we posted a signature ad that was really signed by some remarkable people saying that they are standing in solidarity with Michael Bennett. The signature ad reads as following. I'll just read the very end of it. It says, Michael Bennett has been sitting during the anthem precisely to raise these issues of racist injustice that are now an intimate part of his life. Now we stand with him. I just want to read out who signed on to this because it's just such a dope combination of athletes, activists, and academics. The big three. Three A's, baby. The triple A sign up. Check this out. So you got Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, nine-year NBA veteran, civil rights activist. You got Chris Borland. If you remember Chris Borland, he was the person who played one year in the NFL and then left because of concussion concerns. He was a teammate of the next person I want to tell you who signed on, Colin Kaepernick, who is on this list. That's a big deal because Colin Kaepernick hasn't done a lot of political things other than give away hundreds of thousands of dollars over the last six months. But him signing on to this list is a huge deal. You also have John Carlos, the 1968 Olympian, Sue Bird of the Seattle Storm, Angela Davis, the author of Freedom is a Constant Struggle and the icon that she is, Dr. Harry Edwards, icon that he is, Nora Ericott, who's a human rights attorney and assistant professor at George Mason University, who spoke on a panel with Michael Bennett and I here in D.C., Eddie Glaude Jr., who's the chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton, Melissa Harris-Perry, you might remember her from the Nerdland show, the MHP show on MSNBC. And now she's the director of the Anna Julia Cooper Center at Wake Forest. Craig Hodges, 10-year NBA vet. Patrice Con Cullors, co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement. Naomi Klein, author of No Is Not Enough. Macklemore, hip-hop artist, Seattle-based. That's the connection. Dave Megacy, former NFL player, author of Out of Their League. Ibtahaj Muhammad, former guest on this show, Olympic medalist. Martina Navratilova, the tennis icon. Bree Newsom, she's the one who climbed up the flagpole and pulled down the Confederate flag. Imani Perry, another professor at Princeton University. Kevin Powell, the great lecturer and author. Eric Reed, strong safety, San Francisco 49ers. Megan Rapino of the Seattle Reign, who took a knee during the anthem last year. Arundhati Roy, one of the most famous authors on earth. Kianga Yamada-Taylor, who wrote from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. Michael Skolnick, co-founder of the Souls Agency. People might know Skolnick from television, constant talking head against racism. Brianna Stewart of the Seattle Storm. Atan Thomas, NBA veteran who I do the show The Collision with. Opal Tometi, who's a co-founder of Black Lives Matter. Heather Ann Thompson, who won a Pulitzer Prize for a book I'm reading right now, which I love, called Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its Legacy. Cornell West, name speaks for itself. And Jesse Williams, the actor and activist. That's one hell of a list. That's a hell of a combination of people stepping up to say that they're not going to put up with what Las Vegas police are doing. And in this era, I really do believe that takes a lot of spine and a lot of sand to do that. So that's who the Just Stand Up Award goes to. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. Goes to ESPN. 
and their reprimand of Jamel Hill, the host of Sports Center, aka The Six, a friend of the show, Jamel Hill. And we stand by our friends on this show. And of course, she was a guest. People can go to edgesportspodcast.com to listen to our interview with Jamel Hill. Look, the facts are the facts are the facts. She was suspended for telling the truth. And as the old expression goes, you know, you tell the truth, you shame the devil. And what did she say? She said that Trump is a white supremacist. That's what she said. To me, I don't even understand how this is a partisan question. Donald Trump said that good people march with Nazis, and Donald Trump is undergoing this effort to basically end immigration into this country. He has a goal of cutting it in half in two years, and to do that would take a violent change to how people enter this country. And of course, he's not talking about people entering from Europe or Canada. He's talking about people entering from Latin America, as well as sub-Saharan Africa and the Arab world. It is about the whitening of America, and it's about having immigration policy that punishes people effectively for not being European. And let's not forget also that Donald Trump just happens to be somebody who's going out of his way to defend these Confederate monuments. I mean, my goodness, to not call him a white supremacist is like looking up at the sky and saying, hey, look, it's green. It is stating a fact. And of course, she's been bombarded by trolls and bots and all the rest of it. And ESPN caved to that. And reprimanded her. First of all, I want to give serious props to Jamel Hill. Because Jamel Hill is somebody who, from what she told me, has apologized for violating ESPN's social media policy. But she has not apologized for her words. Nor should she. But I want to take issue with ESPN's social media policy. I want to take issue with a network that is so hypersensitive about these issues that they'll take a man named Robert Lee and turn him into a national joke by pulling him off a broadcast in Virginia because his name sounds too much like Robert E. Lee. I will say, now to be clear, this was done in conjunction with Robert Lee, but still the decision in and of itself uh, made them look like they have this political correctness gone amok. And then you see Hank Williams Jr., uh, Captain Confederacy, the man who called Obama Hitler, is brought back to be the face of their most important primetime property, Monday Night Football. I mean, ESPN, you know what they remind me of so much is they remind me of the NBA during the last years of David Stern when he was trying to clutch so tightly the league that he was like he was giving everybody constipation. And I would argue that the style of play on the court reflected David Stern's management. It's how you had all of those years where like the Pistons were competing for the NBA title and... I mean, it just it was not good basketball. And I really think one of the reasons why it wasn't good basketball was that David Stern had everybody's butt cheeks clenched so tightly, nobody wanted to do anything. And I think now it's no coincidence that in the era of Adam Silver and Michelle Roberts working together, that you have these teams like the Golden State Warriors that have a flow to their game that's much more pleasing to the eye. Now, there is a connection there between how a league is run and whether you treat the people who work in that league as men or as children. And this current generation of NBA players, not only do they refuse to be treated like children, but Adam Silver and Michelle Roberts go out of their way to say, we want to hear what you have to say. We want you to use your platform. And I think that has a ripple effect throughout the league. The NFL takes a much different approach. And I would argue ESPN takes a much different approach. Let people live, ESPN. Can I live? People want to see your personalities live. My goodness. And one last thing, too. I don't even want to say their names because they make me sick. But all of the ex-sports opinionists 
who are now becoming born-again Fox News right-wing shtick monsters. And I don't even say their names because they just want to be named so badly. They're so desperate for attention. But all of them saying things like, whoa, if I said something about Obama, then, you know, I would have gotten fired. All of this kind of like, what about false equivalencies? Let me tell you something. If you were going to have this discussion about Jamel Hill and Donald Trump and being a white supremacist, and you are not reckoning with these words, Charlottesville, Heather Heyer, Lieutenant Richard Collins III, the people who were stabbed on the train in Portland. If you are not reckoning with the reality of what's been produced by this presidency, then you're not having a serious discussion. You're a troll, you're a bot, you're in it for the bucks. Give me a break. And now a quick word from the second best podcast that the Nation Magazine hosts, Start Making Sense. We keep trying to draw them into a feud, but it's not happening. I might have to use more direct action to make that the case. Look, Start Making Sense is a great pod. Their episode this week is called Behind Trump's Heartless Attack on the Dreamers. John Nichols is a guest, plus Elizabeth Holtzman, who's going to be speaking about Robert Mueller. And Joan Walsh is going to be debating about would we be better off if Trump was impeached and Mike Pence was president. And they have quite a back and forth about that. Be careful for the devil you wish for, I guess, is the word that we might want to say about that. But, yo, you got to listen to Start Making Sense if you want to be able to understand the terms of that debate. It's the second best podcast run by The Nation. It posts every Thursday, and you can check it out at thenation.com. And now, back to the program. And now there's part of the show where we talk about Colin Kaepernick. We do Kaepernick Watch. It's a show that developed organically because we realized there was something every week to say about Colin Kaepernick. This week, we're going to talk about week one of the NFL season and the fact that the quarterback play was so abysmal that it was the moment that Donald Trump became president. No, it was so abysmal that 18 quarterbacks, 18 had lower passer ratings in week one than Colin Kaepernick had all of last season, 90.7. It is absurd that he is not in this league, but don't take my word for it. Sweet sassy molassie. Let's hear what Stephen A. Smith has to say. First of all, you got a guy in Scott Tolzien who completed nine of 18 passes. The two interceptions he threw were both pick sixes. He was one for seven on third downs. Is that bad? One for seven on third downs. The one completion he had was for minus four yards. I mean, this is just absolutely positively disgraceful. And and not only that, he looked like he was ready to cry. He literally looked like he was ready to cry. So why is this important to look at the Colts as an organization? Because as early back as June, when they broke their first mini camps, okay, it was clear by that particular moment in time that there may be some problems with Andrew Luck. He may not be ready. And they made a commitment back then that Tolzien was going to be our backup. This dude didn't surprise anybody with his performance yesterday. He confirmed it. It was an absolute disgrace. And, and and there's just no excuse not to, to have somebody like Colin Kaepernick sitting at home when that man is coach is, is quarterback in the National Football League. I'm sorry. As people might know, I don't normally play Stephen A. Smith on this show, but that time I do believe it was worth it. 
And by the way, I'd be remiss. Obviously, my mind is so caught up with Michael Bennett and what's happening to him. As listeners know, I'm doing a book with him. I feel like you know his trauma is my trauma in terms of going through this because I speak to him all the time, so it's in my head. But I'd be remiss if I didn't give a massive shout-out to Sloane Stevens, the daughter, by the way, of John Stevens, who is a badass running back in the NFL for the New England Patriots. But Sloane Stevens, my goodness. I mean, playing Madison Keys, who's one hell of a player herself. I mean, Sloane Stevens dominating in that U.S. Open final. We were watching that in my house, and we were just losing it. I mean, there are these moments when you watch sports where a star is truly born, and I believe that those are the moments that really remind you why you watch sports. The thrill of Sloane Stevens, the thrill of Aaron Judge, the thrill of a Mookie Betts. I mean, these are people who, no matter what team they play for, they remind you why you like sports in the first place. Well, that's all for this week. Thank you so much to my co-producers, Daniel Baker and David Tigabu. Thank you to everybody out there listening. We got tremendous feedback on last week's show about Houston and stadiums that we did with Neil DeMoss. People can go to edgeofsportspodcast.com if you want to check that out. Or you can see it at iTunes or Stitcher or your podcast app of choice. All you got to do is subscribe. And hey, if you're going to subscribe, you might as well give a rating. If you're going to give a rating, you might as well do a little comment. All of that stuff really helps and it ensures the podcast's existence. Also, thank you so much to our listeners. If anybody has any feedback on the show, you can always call us at 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. Here's my question for you. What do you think of youth sports? Destructive or constructive? What have they been like in your life? Give us a call. Let us know. 401-426-3343. 401-426-EDGE. We would love to play some of the responses on next week's show. Remember, you can always reach me, Dave Zirin. Over Twitter is really the best way to do it, at Edge of Sports. I'm pretty good at responding to folks. Thank you to everybody for listening. Hopefully by next week's show, I'm going to have some good footage on our rally that's taking place in front of the Seattle Seahawks Stadium for Michael Bennett. By the time you hear this, it would have happened already. It's being sponsored by the NAACP. Michael, One of Michael Bennett's brothers is going to be there, not Martellus. Uh, it should be a fascinating spectacle. Thank you, everybody. Stay frosty out there. We are out of here. Peace.